Well, I've been given the assignment from the team of elders to speak on rethinking romance. Uh, that was the theme of the young adult study that Vicki and I led last summer. I'm going to start in what might seem a very strange place, but I'm going to start by talking about maple syrup. So, do you prefer real maple syrup or the fake stuff? We have an ongoing discussion at our house uh, because some of us prefer the real maple syrup and one of us still requests that we buy the fake stuff. <laughs> Other than the difference in taste, I never really gave much thought to maple syrup until a few weeks ago uh, when a group of us were driving down to Camp Penile for the work weekend. And in that drive, I was talking with Fred Cervelli, who's taking care of our, our slides this morning, about his own uh, maple syrup adventures. Uh, he was sharing with me how much tree sap it takes to get a gallon of maple syrup. I couldn't believe it. He had collected about 60 gallons of sap, and when it was all boiled down, he was only left with one gallon of syrup. So when I was preparing for today's message, uh, I started thinking about maple syrup. Some of what I'm going to sh share might be sweet. For some of you, it might be a little sticky, uh, but basically, like that massive amount of sap boiled down, I'm going to try to take a five-week, two-hour-a-night study from last summer and simplify it for the whole church this morning. That's over 10 hours of teaching, referencing several books on dating and marriage, and I'm going to try to boil it down, so to speak, to yield about 35 minutes of delicious truths for you all. So, in full disclosure, uh, Vicki and I led last summer's Bible study, and we covered a lot of material. We do not consider ourselves romance experts. In all honesty, we look back at our own dating years, and we wish we had been so much wiser. All we can say is that God has been gracious to us, and that what I'm sharing this morning is wisdom from God's Word that I wish that I had thought through when I was a single. So, for today's message, and like Greg said, it may seem that this sermon is only for singles, uh, but I can tell you it is for the whole congregation. It is for the whole church. In recent weeks, we've studied a lot about Proverbs on the subject of romantic love. So in Proverbs 519, God commands a married, God commands a married couple to be intoxicated with love. In Proverbs 718, the adulterous woman tempts with these words. Let us delight ourselves with love. So clearly, there are two different types, two very different definitions of love. So what is love? My whole message this morning focuses on the subject of romantic love. And here's the approach I'm going to take. I'm going to evaluate our culture's view of love and then consider the Bible's view of love with the goal of condensing it into one concise definition that can shape our view of dating. So, let's start with our culture's view. What does our American culture consider to be love? Our American culture has infused its own version of love throughout our lives. Think about it. It's on TV, it's in commercials, it's on YouTube ads, it's in movies, it's in sitcoms, it's on social media. So I'm just going to give two quick ways that I think it's represented in the culture. And first off, there's this feelings-based romantic love. Everyone is familiar with this type of love portrayed in culture. As a matter of fact, the Hallmark Channel uses its sole reason for being. But they're not the only ones, and it certainly isn't a new concept. 
love songs about the joy of falling in love, being in love, the heartbreak of love. They are seemingly countless. And there are endless movies and TV shows that all feature some extremely romantic story of two people falling in love. So let's contrast that with what has become just as popular in pop culture movies, TV shows, and music, which I will refer to as the hookup culture. This type of so-called love is based purely on short-term relationships that are primarily physical or sexual in nature. People that are engaging in the hookup culture might call this love, or they may sadly think that that's all that love is. Christians would recognize this as merely engaging in and indulging in lust. And if we're all honest, we're all very curious about love. All right, so my wife, who's an 80s girl back in the day, uh, could easily and quickly rattle off a multitude of 80s songs with the word love in them. So there was literally, what is love? Another with the power of love. Someone else singing, I will always love you. While someone else accused, you give love a bad name. There was the remake to Can't Help Falling in Love and another band pleading, I want to know what love is. And we all know that decades earlier, the Beatles reassured their fans that all you need is love. And then two more from the 80s, is this love and is it love? So love is a big deal. It's pretty easy to see that lots of people are looking for it. They're in awe of it and wanting to know when it is love. So what is it anyway? Well, a simple summary of the culture's view of love boils down to what is ultimately the myth of romantic love. In our dating study with the young adults, we often referenced a sermon by internationally known pastor and teacher Vodi Bauckham. In it, Vodi suggests we have bought into the myth of romantic love. It centers around romantic feelings and passion, which then seemingly dictate what you do and with whom as if you were powerless to resist them. And Vodi jokes that you begin to say things like, this thing is bigger than the both of us. You don't get to choose who you fall in love with, and the heart wants what it wants. This is a myth because as the culture repeatedly tells you to just follow your heart, the Bible warns that our heart is wicked, and should not be trusted. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Vodi makes a strong case for why believers should abandon this myth of romantic love and desire something greater. He basically asks, if love is based on following your heart, then is love ever safe? I mean, couldn't my heart eventually fall in love with someone else? And if love is based on finding the one, can you ever really know if you found it? Now, maybe Vodi is just an old fuddy-duddy and is just out of touch with today's world. Uh, how is the world's view of love and following your heart working out for people? How's that going? Well, in his time-honored book, Christian Marriage, author David Ayers cites the following sobering statistics. A 2017 study of almost 15,000 teens revealed that 57% engaged in intercourse before high school graduation. That was six years ago. The divorce rate has basically tripled in the last century. And out-of-wedlock births 
have more than doubled since 1980 to now over, uh, over 40% of live births. As of 2014, an average of one in five pregnancies end in abortion. So not too encouraging for a culture that's searching for love. The statistics look even bleaker for people who want to take their relationship to the next level and choose to do so by living together before marriage. Studies have repeatedly shown that couples who live together, also known as cohabitation, before they get married, have a much greater divorce statistic than couples who do not. That may sound counterintuitive, but it's because couples who choose to live together are literally testing out a fake marriage based on feelings. Back to author David Ayers, again writes, by 2010, it was well known that cohabitation is not only less stable than marriage, it's less stable than remarriage, marrying after a divorce. Only 13% of cohabitations remain intact after five years compared with 77% of remarriages. Cohabitating couples are more likely on average to experience infidelity and domestic violence than married couples. Children in a cohabitating household with the same parents, same mom, same dad, not married, are more likely to have run-ins with the law, fail in school, do drugs, and experience depression. Even more disturbing, children in cohabitating step-families, where the single mother has children and another guy moves in, they are 98% more likely to be physically abused, 130% more likely to be sexually abused, and 64% more likely to be emotionally abused compared with children in married stepfamilies. So, in these situations, there are no vows exchanged, no promises made, so when it's not convenient anymore, it's very easy to just move on. So here's the problem, and this is another one of our authors that we will quote. Author Marshall Segal puts it, hearts weren't meant to be borrowed. I'm hoping that you feel that our system of romantic relationships is broken. I hope that you're longing for something more, whether for yourself or for your children. I want to assure you and challenge you that biblical Christian love is totally different from what we just talked about above. Now, let's go where truth seekers always go, and that's to the Word of God. We're going to examine biblical love. I'm going to talk about biblical love in three categories. First, God's love, and then Christian love, and then marital love. So first, let's start with God's love. Think of this as vertical love, God's love to us. Unlike feelings based on love which prioritizes what is attractive about another person, the Bible actually says there's nothing good, nothing redeeming in us when God chose to demonstrate his love for us. Romans 3, 10 through 12, and then 5, 6, and 8. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then five, six through eight that we read earlier. While we were still weak at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that is God's love. He didn't love us because of how attractive we were and because of how we made him feel. No, he made the choice to love us in full view of our uninviting appearance. What a stark difference from the feelings-based love our culture promotes. Second, let's talk about Christian love towards one another. Take that vertical love from God and share it out to others. God's love through us to others. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Culture encourages a self-centered, me-first view of love. The Bible teaches that love is others-focused. It is patience towards others, kindness towards others, not being boastful or arrogant about yourself. And Christian love ultimately bears and endures all sorts of hardships and challenges in relationships. To crown this point, let me quote Jesus in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. All right, the third and last part of biblical love that I want to talk about is marital love, which will then lead us into the rest of the message on dating and rethinking romance. It may seem like we literally just time warped right by the whole concept of dating and went straight for the finish line, but actually that's pretty much the point. Ironically, the Bible is mostly silent on the concept of moving from single to married or what we call dating, but it has plenty to say on marriage. Marriage was God's idea in the first place when he created Adam and Eve, so since he designed it and it was very good, we need to go to his word on marriage and then think about wise ways for young men and women to get to that point. The classic passage on marital love is Matthew 19. Here it is, verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. The Bible teaches that marital love involves a covenant, which is an agreement, lifelong promise. It's made between one man and one woman. It's not feelings-based love, but a love that is based on a choice, an act of the will, a decision, or a commitment that you stick to. Have you ever stopped to consider how the traditional wedding vows reinforce the Bible's view of love? So listen to these 
Read along as I read them. I take thee to be my wedded wife slash husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Notice what the couple is not asked about each other. They're not asked how they feel about the other person. The emphasis is on a covenant, an agreement, a promise for this man and this woman to make a solemn commitment to have, to hold, to love, and to cherish each other no matter what. Only death can separate them. The Bible demonstrates love and marriage not as feelings-based, follow-your-heart love, but a love that's based on a choice, an act of the will, a decision that you stick to. God literally compares his relationship with the church as that of a bride and a groom. And we don't have time to, uh, for an exposition on that theological point, but God takes marriage very seriously. And he wants his perfect love towards us to be reflected in the covenant of marriage. So, how does all this lead to a sermon on dating? Remember when I say the word dating, I'm not referring to a specific approach to dating, but simply to what happens in the space between being single to the time that you're married. Since I have presented how the world sees love and contrasted with how the Bible sees love, let's first come up with some sort of working definition of biblical love that combines everything we just went over. Then we can move forward. So I will share Vodi Bauckham's definition of love. Anybody who attended our study will probably remember this. Uh, Though I could quote many others who are essentially uh, saying the same thing, but in different ways. So here it is. Biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So notice, biblical love involves a commitment of the will that leads to a sacrificial action on behalf of its object. It's not void of emotion, but it's also not led by emotion. Doesn't this definition fit the greatest act of love? Tri-County, be reminded that Christ's love for you is the true model of biblical love, an act of his will, accompanied by real emotion that led Christ to the most important act of love ever. His death on the cross, done totally on your behalf, he died for you. If you are new to Christianity or have questions about salvation, I plead with you to think about and ask questions and call out to Jesus to save you from your sins and to be reconciled to your maker. So we've seen the culture's view of love that's not working, and we've seen the Bible's sharply different view of love. Now, in the final part of the message, I want to share and buckle up. There are seven practical tips for the whole church. These tips help us to work out the Bible's view of love for dating, and these tips apply whether we're single, who may be dating, a parent teaching kids about dating, or a fellow member praying for those who are dating. 
Hence, the whole church needs to hear this. So tip number one for rethinking romance, reject the culture's view of love and dating. So for the Christian who is living the not-yet-married life, being single requires an active rejection of the culture's view of love. I would argue that you must strive to reject the culture's view of dating and remember a few things. Your contentment and sufficiency can ever can only and ever be found in Christ. Recognize that a significant other, a date, a fiancé, a spouse, will not and cannot satisfy you. Only Christ can give you the contentment that your soul longs for. Refuse to believe that the culture's view that you would be happy or completed if you were just dating someone. Reject that. Rather than follow your heart, the Bible urges the wisdom of guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 The rest of the tips try to work out what guarding your heart rather than following your heart looks like. So here we go, tip number two. I will tell you tip number two and then six and seven I think are the most important. So number two. Believers should only date believers. If you're a professing born-again Christian, hear the message clearly. The number one way you can guard your heart is to define one non-negotiable right now. Before you even think about dating or starting to date again. If you're a believer, then you should only date another believer. One author put it this way. If you're a professing believer, the person you seek to date must be... Regenerate, a born-again believer. They must be repentant, marked by humility, able to acknowledge sin and seek forgiveness by God and others. And reformed, there is evidence of fruit of a changed life. And that's from the book, What He Must Be. All right, so if you can't tell, Vicki and I often uh, reference back to and put a lot of value in Bodhi's teaching Um, Though we have a few disagreements, uh, we found his teaching to be very helpful for us. They should have spiritual fruit in their life, that they're born again. Not just do they attend church, not just that they made a profession of faith in the past, but do they live in a way that they understand their status as a sinner before God, and if not for Christ's saving work, they don't have any hope. There should be evidence or fruit in their life that shows their commitment to faith in Christ. As a follower of Christ, you should only seek a relationship with another follower of Christ. This is a non-negotiable. I cannot stress this enough. Believers know they shouldn't do this, but for some reason, they try to justify dating unbelievers anyways. Resolve now not to date someone who isn't a committed follower of Christ. Tip number three. Those who move wisely from single to married, they work backward from marriage. So biblically speaking, there's no support for a view of dating that is just for fun, for physical pleasure, or to get your emotional needs met. 
There's too much at risk for your heart and your mind and your soul for that. Although neither the word dating nor the concept of dating is mentioned explicitly in the Bible, it is difficult in our culture to find another way that you might pursue getting married without some sort of dating or relationship development. As a matter of fact, I would recommend that you keep this person of interest, a potential date, at arm's length until you can discern what I described in tip number two. So what do I mean by work backwards from marriage? Well, working backwards means that you start with thinking about what type of marriage that you want to have. What type of relationship do you want to have with God? If you're pursuing dating with eyes towards marriage, this person will have a significant impact on your relationship with Christ. Will you mutually spur one another on in your faith and your walk with Christ? If your goal is to have a faithful marriage, one that will draw you and your spouse closer to Christ, and one that can be used by God to raise children to be taught the gospel, and with a family that can impact others with the good news of Jesus Christ, then it'll deeply affect how you go about dating. Tip number four. Don't separate what God joined together, specifically marriage, sexuality, and parenting. The Bible teaches that the sexual relationship is designed to be enjoyed in the bounds of marriage. Parenting is the wonderful and natural result of sex within marriage. Sex outside marriage destroys trust. Sex before marriage also leads to hurt, regret, possible pregnancy and disease, all of which lead to a lifetime of lingering consequences. And as Greg pointedly taught us a few weeks ago, adultery will ruin your life. For some, this is a warning. For others who may have already wandered down this path, please know that there's hope, forgiveness, and redemption in Christ. For Christian singles, biblical love doesn't separate what God joined together, marriage, sexuality, and parenting. God is intended for these to be within the bounds of marriage, a covenant relationship. So as you are guarding your heart and desiring to guard your purity, many dating couples, they may start by to ask questions about physical intimacy. In other words, how far is too far? Well, I would challenge you that this is not the right question to be asking when you're dating. Guarding your heart as a single means you are guarding your purity. And it means that, you're, that you understand how you'd be cheapening God's design for sex to isolate acts of intimacy outside the marriage covenant. Dating with an eye towards marriage means that you are careful not to let a physical relationship cloud your judgment, create an inappropriate emotional bond, or compromise your purity. Okay, a quick message for young men, and then a quick message for young women. Just two sentences. Men, God calls you out as leaders to show your girlfriend that you care for her by guarding her purity. Don't put her in a tempting situation. Women, Look for guys that are more concerned about guarding your purity than doing something that feels good. Be willing to talk about physical boundaries as a couple. 
Tip number five, see each other in a variety of settings, especially with each other's families. It's invaluable to see your date in a variety of life situations, new social situations, opportunities for them to work with younger children, stressful traffic situations, visiting someone in a hospital, how often they're distracted by technology uh, in various circumstances. What about when you have a conflict or a disagreement? What is that like? You get the point. Life is messy. Marriages have seasons that are more stressful than others. How does your date typically respond to stress, to family, to change? Dating should be fun, but it's also a time to learn volumes about this person that you are interested in. You may be wondering if this is a person you can commit your life to, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health. By meeting and spending time with his or her family, you will learn about why he or she is so terrific and also why at times they are so confusing. You will see where their strengths come from, what may be some of their weaknesses, and as you watch them with their siblings, striking new details may emerge. While we're on the topic of family, Scripture does tell us to honor your father and mother, Ephesians 6 and Exodus 20. This is simple, but a challenging command. Be sure that as a couple, you are spending time with your own family as well, despite the quality of relationship you have with your parents. They know you well, and they want what is best for you. It's wise to be open to their insights and opinions regarding people that you date, and it's also a way to honor them. Parents, you've probably been involved with career choices, college education decisions, And those are all things that are very important. Don't let them fend for themselves when trying to find a spouse. Surely, who our children marry is the most important decision that they will make. So parents, be involved. All right, so definitely for the singles, right now the last two. Listen very carefully. Tip number six, surround your relationship with real friends. In Not Yet Married, author Marshall Seagal devoted an entire chapter to the third wheel that we all need, which is an entire chapter on the importance of your other relationships, and more specifically, your friendships. Author Marshall Seagal urges his readers to invest in their friendships, to be open, to be honest, to be vulnerable in them. He also wants his readers to seek and desire accountability in their dating. He defines accountability as this, Being truly, deeply, consistently known by someone who cares enough to keep us from making mistakes or indulging in sin. He goes on to remind us that the Bible warns us to weave all our desires, our needs, decisions, deep into a fabric of family who love us and will help us follow Jesus. This is so good. God has sent you your faith, your gifts, your experience into other believers' lives for their good to encourage them. Seagal further encourages, God has sent gifted, experienced, Christ-loving men and women into your life too for your good. The God who sends these people into our lives knows what we need far better than we ever will. I hope this message is profoundly encouraging to you.
even as you're dating or seeking to date, you should be enjoying rich, deep fellowship with your friends. Hopefully you have one or two real friends in your life. Don't worry if you don't have more than that. Popularity doesn't mean anything. We are looking for quality. You're very blessed if you have one or two good real friends in your life. Remember that Proverbs warns, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. The Bible makes it clear that even though we are saved by God and have the Holy Spirit, we will battle sin constantly. We need each other. Just like Proverbs 27, 17 says, uh, so good, iron sharpens iron. We need real friends. All right, final tip. Here we go. Tip number seven. Avoid leaving your church family behind. Again, author Marshall Seagal points out that although most dating couples want to focus on one another, there's rich wisdom in including your church family. He's quick to add that God has entrusted the responsibility for accountability to the local church. He writes, God means for the church to be the rough tread on the edge of the highway, making sure we stay awake and alert while driving in life and in dating. If we don't build our church family into our routine and our relationships, we're likely to ride right off into a ditch. He goes on to say that the church is filled with people with a rich diversity of age, interests, careers, life experiences. God will use these people if you stay connected to your local church family. If you are not yet married, stay disciplined, prioritize church attendance, and relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Examine yourself before the Lord. Let your pastors and your friends and your church family spur you on in your walk with the Lord. So in conclusion, I give you, with the verse that I quoted in my first tip, Proverbs 4.27, Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. From the Bible's wisdom, we know that we can't trust our own hearts because they're deceitful. We know that only the blood of Jesus can wash our hearts clean, and only the Spirit of Jesus can remake our hearts. And we know that our hearts are designed to reflect God's own love in the way that we love others. So Tri-County, let's pray that we, as a congregation, whether in Christian love, romantic love, or marital love, that we would all reflect God's love. Thank you.